Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today, we feature writer and speaker, Ann Voskamp, and financial advisor, Emily Stroud. Our first guest is Ann Voskamp, a mom, writer, teacher, and speaker. Her book, 1,000 Gifts, explored what it would be like to be grateful for something every single day. Her newest book, The Way of Abundance, talks about how we can still attain joy in the midst of our own brokenness and suffering. Today on the podcast, Anne shares stories from her own life and urges us to drop our masks of perfection and embrace our scars as our scars identify us with Jesus. My name is Anne Boskamp. I am married to a farmer. We have the grace and wild crazy of seven children um, from 22 years old down to three years old, um, four boys and three girls. Um, our littlest um, is from um, from China. Shiloh is has been with us now. It'll be two years this April, um, and I <laughs> I struggle with saying I'm a writer because that's never what I say. <laughs> I always say I'm a waiter. I wait on the Lord, <laughs> and it's a slow listening just to whatever He lays on my heart. So I'm um, I have written, um, I guess now four. Um, New York Times bestsellers, and my latest book, The Way of Abundance, comes out in March. I grew up. Um, I grew up only about 15, 20 minutes away from the farm we live on right now. My very first memory was when I was four years old, and my um, my eighteen month old sister was crushed and killed um, before my mom and I in um, our farmyard by a farm service truck in a farm accident. Um, so I was. Oh, I can't nightmares as a child, terrified of death, and and I was diagnosed with an ulcer by the time I was seven in grade two. Um, by the time I was in my teen years, I was cutting, and by the time I was 18, 19 years old, I was diagnosed with um, agoraphobia and panic attacks. So just, I was, the world was a terrifying place for me where there was not only diagnosis and suffering, um, really violent death could slam up against your face at any moment. Um, I was terrified. Everything in my life that I was afraid of was I was terrified of a broken thing. I was terrified of suffering. And I think, so for me, it's really been trying to process anxieties and fear and suffering and pain. And what do you do with these things? So 1000 Gifts was really looking at um, Fighting that fear and anxiety and suffering. Can I give thanks in everything, through everything? I was always a writer and a journaler. Um, always considered sort of handicapped. I didn't really understand my life unless I could write it all down and start to see how the pieces all fit together. Um, and I was, as a kid, I, I wanted to go to school, either university to look at law or journalism or teaching. I just loved learning and books. Um, so actually, I um, graduated high school, was half my little country <laughs> high school class and scholarship to university, and I was in a concurrent education program and child psychology program. Um, I wanted to teach, but even more so than teaching, I really wanted to understand how did we learn and how did we retain information, and I was really interested in curriculum development, and um, I was 
teaching in downtown Toronto and I just I love teaching little kids we had a, a multi-split classroom kindergarten to grade two and I fell in love with those kids just really enjoyed teaching um, and then at the end of my second year of university I got married to my farmer and um, was continuing on with my um, with my program um, my husband and I were both born in the same hospital, in the same room, in the same hospital, with the same doctor. <laughs> um, so we, we're going to be born, live and die in the same place. But I think there's a real grace just to be in a place where you're rooted. So um, I was raised on a farm. Um, I come from, I'm the seventh generation of farmers in my family and my husband's. They are farmers as far back as their family tree goes. So this is all I've ever known. I knew when I was a little girl, I only wanted to marry a farmer. I loved big sky and wide open fields. I love putting in a crop and taking off a crop and the harvest. I came home and Caleb was born in May of that year. And I decided I couldn't leave this little baby. So I moved my courses over from the University, York University in Toronto to the University of Waterloo um, and took distance education. I always thought that Daryl and I would get married. Um, we'd figure out where I was going to teach and we'd buy a farm and he would farm and I would teach. So that was always the plan. So uh, me coming home and having kids and ending up teaching those kids was, wasn't far from the plan. I... There wasn't anything I loved more. Um, I always felt like as long as you had a good library card. <laughs> so we used to sign out about 100 books out of the library every two weeks. And I would spend hours and hours and hours reading to the kids. And really, that's where I came to writing was um, I started to write curriculum for the kids. Um, geography curriculum, the whole earth is full of his glory. So that's really where I started was just I loved reading to the kids. And I was just curious about the world. And I wanted them to be curious and interested in the world because I really believe education isn't about filling a bucket with information as much as it is igniting a match, lighting a match of curiosity and a passion for the world. So that was what I really wanted to instill in our children. And that's how my own heart burned. So my writing really just came out of that very naturally and organically. When I first started blogging, I didn't have a, I didn't have comments. It wasn't about networking. It really wasn't about <laughs> creating a I struggle with that word platform. I think Christians should only have altars and not platforms and make our lives a living sacrifice. So um, so it wasn't about any of that at all. And I just thought, well, you know, these are things that I'm struggling and working through in my own life. And I'm going to have it as an online journal. If anyone stumbles across this and it blesses them, to God be all the glory. I really was, it was about, just sometimes as um, a mom and a wife, the work that I was doing um, sort of felt like water through my hands. I, I get up in the morning and wash dishes and school kids and make the next meal. And I would get up the next day and do the same thing again. And writing the stories down, I always said, was sort of like canning up the summer of my life for the winter of my life so that I, I could go back and read the stories again of God's faithfulness. So that's really just where I started. And um, someone had, one of my friends, another homeschooling mom, had dared me to write down a thousand things I loved. And as I started to do this, I realized I'm writing down a thousand things, a thousand ways God loves me. I'm counting all the ways God loves me. And it, it began to profoundly change my life. I realized that joy is a function of gratitude and gratitude is a function of perspective. And no matter what the situation was, could I change my perspective and see that there is always, always, always 
something to be grateful for. I had struggled struggled a lot with anxiety and um, realizing that you can't simultaneously feel anxiety and gratitude. <laughs> and the so much of the answer to the, sometimes we we need um sometimes there's medications that we need to help us with anxiety, but there's sometimes anxiety, the answer to some anxiety can be the adoration of Christ. And could I could I live in this posture of constant gratitude really as a as a weapon to fight back worry and fear and anxieties? And it profoundly changed my life. And I was just writing out those stories, journaling online. The 1,000 Gifts just came out of me processing a lot of my own pain and um, how gratitude, really coming back to the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, at the Lord's Supper, he took the bread, which was really the bread of suffering, the bread of the cross, of what was coming before him. He took that bread and he gave thanks. Um, and I've just realized if Jesus can give thanks in that, I could give thanks in anything. And so 1,000 Gifts really is a story of how gratitude radically changed my life. Sarah Young's pastor is a very close friend of mine, and he surprised me when I went, was going to his house, his wife's house, to have dinner one evening. He said, we we're going to stop off, and there's somebody who would just like to see you. And we stopped at Sarah's house and had about an hour with Sarah. And I just, oh, I love her heart for Jesus. And she's right. We are wired to worship something. And if we don't intentionally choose to worship Jesus moment after moment after moment, there will be idols <laughs> that will beg us for their worship. And we need to, gratitude is this, I mean, we sometimes we think of gratitude, well, I'm, I'm generally a grateful person, but how do we go ahead and cultivate um, a default <laughs> of gratitude? And in my life, my default was not gratitude. My default was perfectionism. My default was how can I perform better? My default was striving as opposed to resting in um and God's all-sufficient grace. I think lots of times we um, we can read scripture. We can go to um, our faith communities, our house of worships on Sunday mornings, and we can listen to a sermon. Um, theology, though, that doesn't birth itself at the kitchen sink is a stillbirth theology. Somehow we have to figure out, how do I incarnate what I believe? How do I put skin and flesh on that? And lots of times... People ask to talk about, you know, what kind of Christian you are, what kind of believer you are. I really say I'm, a, I'm an incarnationalist. I want to incarnate the gospel, not just that it's something that I cerebrally understand or think about or, or even articulate, but how do I embody it and live it out moment by moment? And that honestly is really, really messy. What if we were really raw and honest and vulnerable and we took off the mask of our perfectionism and said, I am broken, but can I tell you about a wounded healer who has, who is all my sufficiency, who puts me back together? It's this holy, sacred exchange where I give him my brokenness and I can be real and vulnerable about that. And he exchanges all of that and gives, take, gives me all his righteousness, his wholeness and abundance. So it's a sacred exchange. And I, I think we need to be, we do, not only do, our, do we do ourselves a great disservice, we do the world around us a great disservice when we are not vulnerable and honest about our brokenness because they see our hypocrisy. So I think um, ultimately what we want is deep intimacy and um, in relationship with other people. And you don't get to intimacy without taking that, that broken way of vulnerability and humility. I had this epiphany really for me that it wasn't about practicing the presence of God, 
I need to practice the presence of being attentive because the presence of God is everywhere. And I don't want to waste suffering by um, wasting my attention. So how can I be attentive to the presence of God in this moment? Because ultimately, wherever God is leading me, He's leading me closer to Himself. The summer I found myself in in the hospital in um, heart failure with um, a post-operative pneumonia. So my lungs were filling up with fluid and my heart was failing and um, just not a situation you expect to find yourself in in your early 40s at all, nor did the doctors. Um, so really processing, it really for me was a sort of this moment of late night, um, not sleeping, finding it hard to breathe, realizing my heart is failing and looking at my own failures generally in my life and bringing them to the Lord. And for me, it really was realizing that laying there in the hospital bed, suffering can be a friend who drives you where you didn't know you needed to go. And um, and that, that process of that hospitalization for me really was that I needed to come much closer to Jesus. And what, what did he want me to do? This whole life tour, <laughs> life detour, really meant that God wanted me to run right into his arms so he could reconstruct my heart and for me to look at my own my own failures and sometimes when it feels like everything is falling apart maybe we're just maybe we're just really falling into the arms of God and that was what that experience for me um, really was about what do you do with your failures what does it look like when you feel like a failure and it really was coming Okay, Lord, what if my heart does fail here and this is the end of my life and I look back at my life and what do I do with it? I mean, we all we all have this closet of regrets about not only things we have done, but um, actually studies show that um, regret, our, the greater regrets in our life are for the things that we, we didn't do, the things we have left undone. And um, and just really realizing that without, without Jesus, our heart does fail. <laughs> I think there's such profound comfort in knowing that His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And we may not understand the the purpose or the point in our suffering, but whatever it is, it must be so important and so profound that Jesus Himself is willing to go through that suffering with us, <laughs> that we don't ever cry alone, that Jesus walks with us and experiences that suffering with us. And so many times we say, we think we want an answer, why the suffering? And really, answers can be really cold. What we really want is to know we're not alone in the suffering. We really want more than an explanation. We want an experience of God in that suffering. We want to know He is with us in the suffering. And as I talk about in, in The Broken Way, in this next book, To the Way of Abundance, withness is what breaks brokenness. God with us, we are not alone in that brokenness. brokenness. And the answer to so much of the suffering in the world is withness. Will we have compassion, which literally means co-suffering? Will we have compassion, co-suffer with other people? And I think I think sometimes we think that if we could just have a life without suffering, we would have a life of joy. And I, I don't think I don't think a life joy is not the absence of suffering in our hands. Joy is how do we handle suffering in our hands. For for our perspective, I mean the suffering sometimes is incomprehensible. It's, it's I mean the suffering is it's evil. 
and 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 I think for us to realize that love we need an otherworldly love to overcome that kind of evil a love that is actually cruciform that Jesus himself um, absorbed that evil through his suffering on the cross and then to also understand that sometimes God allows what he can hardly stand for purposes that we can't understand. Um, and so to, to trust that his ways are higher than my ways, that ultimately God himself is a mystery. And sometimes I look at the suffering and I say, what is this, God? I don't understand. But trust that in the midst of what I don't understand, what appears to be a mystery to me, God himself will sustain me. I think I come to understand through riding the broken way and the way of abundance. What I was terrified, everything in my life that I was afraid of, was I was terrified of a broken thing. Do not be afraid of broken things. God is redeeming everything. If I wasn't afraid, we're so afraid of the suffering of death. We're so afraid of, of the Good Fridays in our lives. We're so afraid of, of the carrying the cross places, the, the Via Dolorosos, the, the way of suffering. And being so afraid of those places makes it so we never get to the, the places of resurrection, the, the, the abundance places, the places where, where God takes all the brokenness, the abundance of brokenness, and now makes that into a mosaic of grace that's for our abundant healing and wholeness. We think the way of abundance means I need to avoid the way of brokenness and realizing that, no, I find the way of abundance through my own brokenness. I need to stop running from it and realize that, that God wants to bring me abundance through it. So we don't have to be afraid of our own brokenness or our own failures, that we are actually falling into our arm, His arms and that um, we don't have to be afraid of failure because Jesus' arms never fail. Our scars, our brokenness is what we sometimes want to hide and mask, but those scars identify us with Jesus' scars. Those are our courage, and, and they are our brave. And we, we don't hide them. We share them because it gives Christ all the glory because by His wounds we are healed. To find out more about Anne's book, The Way of Abundance, please visit annvoscamp.com. Stay with us for the second half of our program after this brief message from Audible. As a special offering to you, the listeners of the Jesus Calling Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Find your favorite Sarah Young titles, including Jesus Calling and Jesus Always, in an audiobook version, and get it for free by trying audible.com. Check out a small sample of the Jesus Calling audiobook featured at the end of this podcast. To download an entire free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Jesus Calling. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash Jesus Calling for your full free audiobook. Now, on to the second half of our show. Our next guest is financial planner Emily Stroud. Emily helps people think about their future, not in terms of wealth, but in terms of living to our fullest potential. She helps us sift through being faithful in our finances and offers up hope for any of us who struggle with financial woes. 
My name is Emily Stroud, and I live in Fort Worth, Texas. I am a wife and mother. I have a daughter who is 11 years old and a son who is seven years old. We live in a farmhouse on about eight acres just outside of town, and I own and manage a boutique investment firm called Stroud Financial Management here at the farmhouse. We have clients out all the time, and we um, sit around a farm table, and we talk about their goals and their dreams and their fears and how we can help them make proactive, long-term strategic financial decisions that will help bless them and bless generations to come. I was born in Fort Worth, which is where I live now. And then when I was just about to start kindergarten at the age of five, my father moved our family to Dallas, which is only an hour away, but the culture is very different, much more cosmopolitan than Fort Worth. And that is where I actually grew up during all of my formative years. I've been a little introspective lately, wondering about how I ended up where I am when I started thinking about my childhood. And my father started his own business in Dallas. That was why we moved right before I started kindergarten. So I was very young. And we would go up to his office after school. My mom would take us up there. And on weekends, he'd be working. And believe it or not, when I was in about second or third grade, my dad let me start filing for him because I was always very analytical and detail-oriented, even from a very young age. And I loved it. I would pretend that it was my office. And um, I would pretend to answer the phone and um, shuffle papers around. And I just thought I was playing. Looking back, I think I always really enjoyed the business world, the environment. My dad was very open with my brother and I because he was his own business owner and he would tell us about how business worked and what things cost and how expensive it was to live. And sometimes we could have things that were new and sometimes he would say, you know what, we just can't afford that right now. So my parents actually were pretty open with my brother and I about finances, which now I know as an adult is not always the case by any means. So I did learn a lot from my parents and from my father in particular about how to run a business and what it really took um, to withstand the ups and downs of the economy. I saw the glamorous, great parts when the economy was going well and sales were being made. And I also saw the stress that my father went through when the economy went down and when he had to lay people off and when he wasn't quite sure how he was going to pay the mortgage that month because um, things were really, really tight. I definitely worked in high school. Um, my parents provided all of the necessities, but if I wanted a new bicycle or a new pair of skates or the latest prom dress or something like that, they definitely made me work and have what I call skin in the game. So I learned the value of a dollar. They did not just give me anything that I asked for. And at the time, I thought it was so annoying <laughs> but looking back, I can appreciate um, what a good job they did as parents. And then while in college, they paid for my undergraduate tuition and room and board, which was a huge gift. But when I decided I wanted to get my MBA and further my education at TCU, my father said, wonderful, you're on your own now, which at the time was almost devastating because I thought, how in the world am I going to survive? But, you know, 
necessity is the mother of all invention. And I learned more in those two years about how to support myself, be scrappy. I got a scholarship that I applied for because I was motivated to survive. And I worked a job on campus and I had an internship and I worked in the summers and holidays. And so it was tough. But when I came out of graduate school, number one, I had work experience because I ended up working for American Express Financial Advisors, which is when I really fell in love with personal financial planning for individuals and not corporations. So that was really great. And I don't know that I would have taken on another job in full-time graduate school had I not been forced to look for a job to support myself. And then when I came out, I had a great idea of what I wanted to do. I think people are afraid to talk about money because at some point in the culture, we were taught that religion and politics and money were the topics that were not supposed to be brought up in polite conversation. So some of that stigma has been passed down where people just don't talk about it. Secondly, we live in a culture of credit cards, and we really can get whatever we want right now, regardless of whether or not we actually have money in the bank to pay for that item. So we don't have to have delayed gratification. We can get what we want now. That is how a lot of people end up with a mountain of stuff and a load of debt that they can't climb out of. And so also, if they haven't been taught, people that don't have a cash reserve, which is for emergencies, then they're always one paycheck away from bankruptcy or, you know, using credit cards to make ends meet. And so there's no proactive approach to their financial planning. It's all survival mode here and the now. That was one of the reasons why I wrote my latest book, Faithful Finance, 10 Secrets to Move from Fearful Insecurity to Confident Control, because after 20 years of counseling people about how to manage their money, I have found that everybody has an issue with money. It doesn't matter if the resources are plentiful or if the budget is really, really tight. Everyone seems to have some sort of issue or fear related to money. The book is titled Faithful Finance. And so it has two meanings. From a spiritual standpoint, faithful means I seek God first before I make decisions. I ask him for wisdom and guidance, and then I move forward. I don't buy something and then ask him to bless it later. So it's about putting God first in your life. But from a secular standpoint, faithful finance also means I do something regularly, systematically, and religiously. I save religiously every month. I pay myself first. I pay my credit cards off every month. I consult my budget every month. So I think you get the idea. So it's something that you do without fail on a regular basis. I have found just having a plan in place just immediately changes people's countenance. They relax, they feel more peaceful. Just knowing that there's a strategy and that there's hope and there are things they can do usually radically changes people. And also it really helps and strengthens couples that are married where this is a huge source of tension between them. When we talk about it and I'm the unbiased third party, I find that we're literally changing marriages 
if the cornerstone or the backbone of our country is the family and the family's breaking down and people are divorcing, if we can save marriages that then keep nuclear families intact, I feel like we're really making a difference in the world. Everybody has money. So this isn't something like you can just escape the idea and we just won't deal with that. You In our world today, you have to have money to buy food and clothes and shelter. And so it's something that everyone has to deal with. There is this stigma, and especially in the Christian arena, that money is evil. And that could not be further from the truth. The love of money above all else, above God and family, is evil. But honestly, the Bible talks about best practices for how to manage your money. So this stuff is not new information. I haven't reinvented the wheel. Um, God talks about money, and He loves to bless us. I'm not talking a prosperity gospel by any means, so please don't misunderstand me. But if we are faithful with our resources and we tithe and we give and we save, then we will be blessed because number one, we're not going to live in such a state of fear. If nothing else, we're living in a state of peace as it regards to our finances. And also there's people all around the world that are being the hands and feet of Jesus on the ground doing their ministry work. Well, what do they need to keep going? Oftentimes it's money. So we can't all be in Uganda building schools and that sort of thing. But from my little you know, house in Fort Worth, Texas, if I'm being faithful with my money and I can support that person, that missionary, whoever it is that's over there in Uganda, that is just as important as the person that's actually there on the ground. And so we can use money to change the world. It is a tool to bless our families and to bless others. I think prayer should be the first step in making financial choices. A good example is I recently remodeled this farmhouse that we live in and the windows that were delivered were the incorrect windows, but we didn't have time to replace the windows and get the correct order. So this is a first world problem, but I've never liked these windows. And so I had someone come out yesterday to give me a bid on what it would cost to replace the windows. And it was ridiculous. It was not in our budget. There was no way we could afford these windows. But I was in my mind trying to justify, I wonder if I just move things around a little bit and do this, that, and the other. So I was doing exactly what I tell people not to do. And I spoke to my husband after work. He's like, that's crazy. We do not need these windows. And I said, you know what? You're right. And I'd started praying about it. And the Lord was saying, you don't need these windows. Why don't you be grateful for the fact that you have windows in your home? And so I had to refocus my thoughts. And I was kind of ashamed of myself because I was really spinning in my mind about how I was going to afford these windows that I didn't really need. I just wanted. And so if I had prayed about this even earlier in that decision-making process, it would have been more clear that that was not something that we needed to focus our finances on by any means. It was just something I wanted, not really anything that I needed. And honestly, if you can pray first and then act, things always go a lot better. About a year ago, my 
mother and father sold the house that I grew up in in Dallas, and they actually moved to an assisted living facility here in Fort Worth. And they're able to be independent there because they have help. Um, my dad is tremendously involved in taking care of her, so that's also a burden on him. But she still has a good attitude, but every year the memory fails a little bit more. And it's just a tough situation. My sweet mom is the one who gave me my first copy of Jesus Calling. I think it was in my mid-20s. I was out of graduate school, but I was definitely a young adult. And I was looking for a devotional that was short, but very effective, you know, something that was practical, that would give me some spiritual guidance and something that I could do every day. And so she gave it to me as a gift. I don't even think she knew that was something I was looking for. So that was really neat. And then I started to read it every day. And it seemed to be so interesting that every day it seemed like they were talking just to me as if God was speaking to me and telling me exactly what I needed to equip me for that particular day. And I just fell in love with Jesus calling. And I would also use it as a chance when every, when I'd read the devotional, I would always read the scripture in my actual Bible that they referred to at the end of each devotion. And so what I found is I would look up the verse, but I would usually end up reading the whole chapter or something else would come up. And so it became, it became basically a format for my daily devotion. And fast forward to now, my sweet mom has dementia. I still keep a copy of Jesus Calling on my nightstand, and it reminds me that she still is passing on her legacy of prayer and faith to me through that book. And so it it really is a special thing to me because it always reminds me of my mom. The most loving thing you can do if you are responsible for taking care of family members is to have the right amount of life insurance, the right amount of disability insurance. If you are ever injured or become sick and can't work, but you still need to support your family. And then I also talk about long-term care insurance, which often gets overlooked and people think it's a frivolous expense. But I have seen firsthand the difference it has made in my parents' lives to have that long-term care insurance and how now it is paying for their living expenses and taking care of them and they are so much better off than they ever would have been if they had not bought that insurance when they were in their early 50s before either one of them had significant health challenges. Honestly, it really doesn't matter how much money you have. Everyone can benefit from wise counsel, but this book actually outlines the 10 best practices, which we call secrets. And we write it in such a way that there's no shame. There's no condemnation that, oh my goodness, you've made bad choices. Now there's no hope for you. And that seems to be the message in the media right now, which is very shaming and that doesn't help anybody. And so we just want to give people practical information. And we do also provide that information with a biblical worldview. I have never met anybody that's a hopeless case. There is always hope and there is always something practical that we can do. And so there's no such thing as hopeless in this world. In His mercy, He just pursues us. And I learned early on that money will buy happiness, but it does not provide lasting joy. To hear more about Emily's book, Faithful Finance, visit emilystroud.com. 
Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we talk with Lisa Turkhurst. Lisa is president of Proverbs 31 Ministries and the New York Times bestselling author of Uninvited, The Best Yes, Unglued, Made to Crave, and 16 other books. She talks about her brand new devotional, Embraced, 100 Devotions to Know God is Holding You Close. I think what Embrace will do for people is bring them back to that core reason God created us, and that was intimacy with Him. And if we can believe that God is with us, then we truly will feel a closeness with Him, and the fears will dim in the light of His presence. Our anxiety will dim in the light of His presence. And most importantly, drawing them into intimacy with God, that will help a lot of the struggles that they're having. Um, They'll have a better perspective in the midst of it all. This week's featured passage comes from the June 13th entry of the Jesus Calling audiobook. I am creating something new in you, a bubbling spring of joy that spills over into others' lives. Do not mistake this joy for your own or try to take credit for it in any way. Instead, watch and delight as my spirit flows through you to bless others. Let yourself become a reservoir of the spirit's fruit. Your part is to live close to me, open to all that I am doing in you. Don't try to control the streaming of my spirit through you. Just keep focusing on me as we walk through this day together. Enjoy my presence, which permeates you with love, joy, and peace. Do you love hearing great stories of faith each week via the Jesus Calling podcast? We want to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Jesus Calling podcast, visit the Jesus Calling page at iTunes.com and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell us how you feel about the show and what future guests you'd love to see. Your reviews and subscription help us share these stories of faith to more people who need the hope and encouragement of Jesus Calling. If you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.